That was iconic. Oh my! It was not iconic. It was a good movie. Get over it. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Control Supreme Court, working in conjunction with extremist elements of the Republican Party to take away freedoms and our personal autonomy. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. Today, it's Noah Rothman talking about the new Puritans and Toby Young talking about the fall of Bojo. So let's have our 600th podcast. I can hear you! Welcome. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number DC, if you're using Latin. <laughs> 600. Oh, my wow. God. How do we get here? Well, of course, because as they say in NPR, like, by people like you, uh, folks who've joined Ricochet.com and, and found that it's it's the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. You can join it, too, and you ought to, because then you'll be the kind of guy who says, yep, they made it to 1,200. You can put that one on me. But in the meantime, here we are for 600, and we're just going to have a regular podcast, which means it's going to be long and fantastic and full of interesting people talking, interesting people like Rob Long and Peter I'm James Lilix, by the way, Rob Long and Peter Robinson. Uh, Rob appears to be in some coastal community, yeah, straight out of a late, a late Edward Hopper painting. Peter, I assume, is in California, and you guys oh, are yeah. enjoying great weather. I'm here sweltering in humid Minnesota. Peak of the summer, all is well, all is good. Except, of course, you look outside your house and just look at the world and you scratch your head and you, 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 you moan and lament. Which of the issues of the day, gentlemen, uh, popped up in your radar today is the uh-oh sort of thing that's going to dominate the news for the next couple of days? I've got mine. It may not be yours. You mean what, what <laughs> of the, the, uh, the fancy hotel brunch buffet offerings of bad news? <laughs> Do we select as our first course? You know, when you go to the hotel thing and you're like, oh, I'm going to go there. I'm going to wait. Don't uh-huh. I got to get back to that where they're making those omelets. But you kind of never do because you're just too busy eating the shrimp. Um, I would say, well, the good news course. When it comes to the bad news of the day, Rob does not want to stand in the omelet line. He wants no. to go directly to the okay. shrimp yeah. and I to eat, the croissants. Eat, you know, eat it first. Um, I, the good news, there, there is some good news. The job numbers were very, very good. Um, and that should be good news. But it's also very, very perplexing and baffling news because um, <laughs> we, are, we, are either go- we are either in a recession or we're going to be in one and we're in this terrible position, which we get into in this country when we spend too much money of an inflationary period where we want, we need to get into a recession. Right, right. We will cause one ourselves. The fed is going to raise They're, they're going to raise interest rates faster. They, they announced. So, um, you know, they, you know, if you're in politics, of course, if you're in office, say in the big office in the Oval Office, this is not good news. And if you're an American, uh, it's not good news. Um, if you're a younger American, it might be potentially better news than simply letting inflation run wild. But it is already running wild. So um, we have to now we're in this weird, perverse position where we're hoping that a recession is going to happen. Um, because that's going to soak up yeah. the inflationary uh, powers. That's my back of the envelope ec- uh, econ- uh, economics, Peter. 
Uh, oh, why, thank you, Rob, for, for, to- <laughs> for tossing it to me. That, yeah. the, you, I saw you were looking away, and I thought I better shock. No, well, no, no, no. I'm just thinking to myself that that I guess this is phase two for me of the Biden administration. No, phase three. Phase one was, oh, my goodness, how could the nation have elected this man, and how can he actually serve as president, and how can the press report on him as if he's actually a serious person? Okay. Phase two, which began with the debacle and withdrawing from Afghanistan, was that the poll numbers caught up with Joe Biden and the Democrats, and that it, it was clear sooner than I expected it to be yeah. that the American people were on to these guys. And we've talked about this several times, the unbelievable way in which instead of moving to the center and moderating and and sort of reaching out to the middle and to the American people themselves, the Democrats, including Joe Biden, have just moved left and left and left. Okay, now we're in phase three, which is the worst of the phases. And phase three is the reality phase. This is not pop press and it's not politics. Now we've got the reality of the administration and the Fed policies messing up people's lives. People are going to be thrown out of work. People are watching. I'm watching my savings erode. This is not good, but it is, It in a certain way, it's reassuring. Reality is reality. The system will adjust. It'll take it some time and people will suffer. But we're, we're now in the reality phase. I agree. I think that's, unless, that's you, unless you think this is Putin's tax hike, as the administration <laughs> wants us to believe then you're in sort of the reality distortion phase of it all. But I don't think people buy that. I think people sense there's a sort of, there's this fundamental lack and absence and things askew. And it's, it's what Peter said, you know, watching your savings disappear, watching what you right. watching the diminution of things that you once expected to be sort of normal, you know, $5 gasoline is, is an affront to God and man and the rest of it, even though it's precisely what they have been telling us for years that we need to have in order to transition us to the next phase. For me, it's little things like I tried the other day to actually eat a hamburger in the fast food restaurant. Do you know how difficult it can be to just to have a place to sit down because they don't have the staff. So you drive up and you, and you grab the door and the door is locked. And you think I'm either going to have to sit in my car like a savage and scrabble fries into my mouth, or I can find some place that actually where you can sit down like a civilized <laughs> being. And I went to three places and in each one of them, I walked up and the door Bing was locked. Because where could you? They sit were down. serving only to cars through the window. Only to, car, only to cars. Where could right. you sit? Where, where does a James? What what fast food burger does James Lilacs prefer? Um, well, it, see, here's the difference, Rob, and this okay. is where this is why people listen because they know you can't just say fast food. It's got to be fast food or fast casual. The yeah. latter, the latter being a little bit more upscale, right? So you can go to Five Guys where they have no choice yeah. because they have a dining room. You can go right. to Shake Shack because they don't Five Guys is delicious, by the way. I think it certainly yes. is, and they give yes. you 48 pounds of uh, French fries as well. But it was the it was the uh, tier below that the Wendy's, the uh, the Arby's, the Burger King, all of it was just nothing. You could go in and eat. So, I mean, that's no big deal. I mean, here I am in a you know, country overflowing with food. I got the money I can pay for. It. It's not a big deal. Although when did it become $7.71 to have two hamburgers and French fries? I don't know. That's another question. But there's just something about that. That's, I mean, the American idea is in the back of your mind. It's Saturday night. You're cruising down the strip with the rest of the cars. The neon is bright. You're going to pull into McDonald's at 10 o'clock and you're going to sit there and have a hamburger and a shake, right? And when that mm-hmm. suddenly just evaporates because we don't do that anymore. There's, it's 
something's been, I know it's a small, stupid thing, but there are so many of them that make you feel we've gone off the course and we know it. And we know what right. we want to get back to. May, uh, may I rise to a brief culinary point of order? Uh-huh. Yeah. Either one of you can answer this. Why are the fries at five guys better? Is it McDonald's? Better than reduces what? Them all, well, McDonald's reduces all the, if I understand this correctly, McDonald's reduces potatoes to a kind of mush and then extrudes them into mm-hmm. the form of sort of artificial French fries, whereas Five Guys uses real potatoes and actually yes. cuts them. Is that correct? Yeah, there's sacks of potatoes actually there, you know, so you can see. Uh-huh. I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna counter that. Okay. Uh, uh, the it's hard to get. I mean, people's fry French fry tastes are, and size preferences are you know their own, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I am not a fan of the McDonald's meat offerings. I don't think they're good. Um, I think the McDonald's breakfast menu is peerless, and I, but I think their fries are utterly fantastic. And if eaten at the right time, they're hot and they're salty and they're they're absolutely delicious. You can't get better fries than McDonald's fries. Um, there's a very famous cooking teacher in Boston named Madeline Kamen who opened her her uh, and she's incredibly strict and incredibly French, and she would open her very 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 uh, tough. Um, rigorous cooking, year-long cooking cl- school by bringing in McDonald's French fries for her class. Oh, really? And she would pass them out and, say, and eat them, you know, and everybody would eat them. And she said, what do you think of these fries? And then people just felt compelled to say, oh, they're not good. They're this, they're that. She said, no, they're delicious. They're the best fries you can get. Don't be a snob. French fries are chemistry. That's all it is. It's starch, salt, and fat. That's it. Don't, don't mm. t- attempt to grow mm. a brain. Mm. Um, and I've, uh, I've always liked that. Anyway, um, but James, is there a, is there a, um, and I know we have news to talk about. Is there, isn't there like a, a local, you know, local booster, you know, burger place? I mean, in Southern California, it was always In-N-Out Burger. That's right. the, right. that's the, right. the, and in Texas, it's Whataburger, which is delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, isn't there this the equivalent up there? Well, we have something called the Juicy Lucy, which is a hamburger <laughs> okay. with, with cheese it. inside of it, but it's only done at one place and then a handful of pretenders. We don't have many chains. We, I mean, we've, we've, every chain has, has, has flown, has, has come through, made a stand, done it. But it would, the other day, actually, and, and I, we should probably cut this because we have to get to news, but I, I came up to the drive through and they asked me what I wanted and I said, I want a hamburger. And so in and small fries to which the person said, the person said, you want a junior hamburger. I said, no, I don't know. No, no, I don't. What? I want a hamburger. And the person said, you want eight hamburgers. Eventually (laughs) it got to the point where I had to drive through and I explained to them and I kept saying, no, I want a hamburger. And I would hold up, hold up one and they would person would go and then come back and then hold up eight fingers, eight, eight hamburger. I finally drove away. (laughs) <laughs> the, the idea, the idea of ordering a hamburger was such a linguistic challenge. Right. Anyway, so but I still have the freedom to go someplace else. Freedom is what Gavin Newsom is telling everybody that California now stands for. That he's saying that uh, it is his bid, I guess, for presidential run. Uh, all you people in Florida, come to California and regain your freedoms. Anybody else see that ad? Sort of scratch their heads and say. Say what you will about California, but uh, the uh, epitome of freedom is not precise. Freedom to right. sleep on the street, freedom to defecate on the court, freedom to pass out from fentanyl. Correct. Yes, correct. You but, got it all. Right. Right. All that's correct. All that is correct. And it should. Do they really? I guess they do. I guess if you live in a state that takes the extreme liberal position 
on abortion. I guess that's what's driving them. Then they really feel that's the only freedom. Of course, you're not free to to debate the matter, but that's the only freedom that counts. If they have that, then you're in a free society somehow. Is that is that all it is at this moment in the liberal mind, the progressive mind? I just don't understand how he can, what is he not, what does he not, does he not, even on the political side, just imagine if the presidential race does come down to Gavin Newsom versus Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Think of the ads the DeSantis campaign can Illegal immigrants streaming into California on the southern border, middle-class Californians streaming out of California across all the other borders, all the needles on the streets of San Francisco. By the way, that is not hyperbole. I get to San Francisco. There are streets where you have to step over the needles and avoid the, the piles of human poo. It's dis right. I just don't well, understand I mean, what Gavin Newsom could have been. Well, thinking. I mean, look, I mean... What's he supposed to say, Peter? <laughs> what, what, if the governor, if the sitting governor of the state of California in 2022 is planning to run for president, which I think he is. Yes, in his mind, for sure. Yeah. What, what else, what else is he going to run on? He like, you may as well just brazen it out. I, I you know, in a way, I, I, I think I kind of admire it. It's just so bizarrely um shameless i mean i don't know what first of all i would i if i was in the meeting and they're trying to figure out okay what's your angle i couldn't think of one that's like the i guess it's the it's the angle where we just alter reality i think that's what it is that's right the, but i also feel like there is something about the gavin newsom ron DeSantis pairing that um, would be so incredibly healthy for America. I, well, I actually Tell me think what you that mean America I, I instinctively is, agree. Yeah, yeah that is in fact America right now. That's there are some people who are sort of just kind of generally under the Ron DeSantis uh, umbrella, and I'm not entirely under that umbrella. I think he's a little craven in some respects, but he's certainly a really, really smart chief executive and 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 a smart, brave, informed one. Um, and then there's the California. Uh, version of America. And, and I feel like these are two very clear kind of, this is a classic American right. showdown. It, it, it's about the states. We are then, we were going to, if, if, if this dream uh, match happens, we get to vote on which state is the best laboratory for freedom and prosperity for America going forward, which is exactly what the founders wanted. And we'll have somehow this country is in its own weird neurotics, nervous breakdown it's been having for 25 years. It will somehow Forrest Gump its way into back on track where we actually have, a, have an election that's about something that's really important and um, based on original architect's vision of this country. How's will that, be for, the, will, how's will that for positive? The first presidential election in which both candidates come from a state that had a Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. No, you're right. The Peter, the I mean, the ads just absolutely run themselves. You they have really. you have Florida, you have California schools with all the kids masked, and Newsom himself laughing in the French Laundry versus you know, Florida, where the kids are happily gall you know, gallivanting around the playgrounds, un untethered by. Yeah, no, I mean that, that's I I hope. By the way, the latest the latest aspect of this outrage. I don't know if the two of you. Being non-Californians, Rob, a recovering Californian, this is all on Twitter. I don't know whether it's penetrated to the national media yet. But as these ads are airing of Gavin Newsom in Florida, where is Gavin Newsom? 
Gavin Newsom is in Montana. He is in Montana on vacation. Montana is a state with no income tax. It is a state which has taken positions on this, that, and the other social issue that California finds so outrageous and so unacceptable that California has banned state uh, banned trips by state employees to right. the state of Montana. I mean, Gavin, it's unbelievable. I'd like to take a vacation in Montana too, come to think of it. Oh, uh, and, oh, excuse me. Somebody cut me off because now I'm I'm approaching apoplexy. But, but it's all... good. We we should have this. Be people yes, should get should. to vote on this. That the, the the trend to getting to vote on stuff, meaningful stuff, is a good trend. It's to be. Uh, we should be encouraging mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, Gavin Newsom way, running running as a Gavin Newsom is not a bad thing for America. It's good. We should have a choice. The idea it's of not a bad thing. The idea of banning travel to to another state because of their policies <laughs> in California. Yeah. I mean. It, you wonder how many California people in the government die like Sam O'Neill in, in the hunt for Red October and say, I would have liked to have seen Montana. But of course, <laughs> such things were forbidden. I'm sure it's cooler in Montana, but hey, if you're in a hot place and you can't get out of the heat, get rid of your underwear. Yes, get Done. rid of your old and your stifling underwear. The only way to play it. Oh, I thought you meant just get rid of it. No, okay, no, no, okay. no, 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 no. I wouldn't go that. Say something of that sort unless I was actually intending to sell people a replacement. And that stuff is Tommy John. When you wear Tommy John, you are just that much cooler. So you can do everything better thanks to breathable, lightweight fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. With dozens of comfort innovations, Tommy John will keep you looking and feeling cool all season long, from lounging at home to summertime fun. That's why Tommy John doesn't just have customers. No, they have fanatics with over 17 million pairs sold. That's 34 million leg holes. Uh, people love their Tommy John underwear and their loungewear. As do I, too. I mean, let me tell you this. Uh, you know, people tell you, oh, it's stretchable, it's this, it's, it's comfortable. It's also incredibly durable. And at a time when maybe money feels a little bit short and you want to buy shorts as much as you used to, you can hang on to those Tommy Johns because they wear like, they wear forever. And Tommy John just doesn't make you feel cooler, but you actually are cooler. You can stay up to seven degrees cooler than cotton stuff, which gets soaky and wicky. Uh, Tommy John's Apollo underwear keeps you cooler. And there is no risk because you're covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free, guarantee. Shop TommyJohn.com slash ricochet right now. This very much well when we're done here, but just write this down. TommyJohn.com slash ricochet. Why? Because you get 20% off your first order. You get 20% off right now at TommyJohn.com slash ricochet. TommyJohn.com slash ricochet. See the site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring this number 600 Ricochet podcast. All this talk about food and hamburgers, which are sinful. Now that you think about it, you shouldn't be eating them. You're killing the world. You're destroying the planet. You ought to be eating the bug mush. Uh, leads us to our conversation with Noah Rothman, associate editor of Commentary Magazine, co-host of the Commentary Podcast, and the author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. As of a few days ago, he's also the author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Uh, if you're watching this, the chat, you know that he is attired like Cotton Mather in order to underline the brand of the book. And, uh, you know, well, you know, we like fun here. So we wanted to chat with Noah about how we can, can fight back against this Puritan impulse. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Basically, I got the uh, first question here, and then I'm going to follow up and I'm going to challenge you because people like conflict. Okay. Conservatives, you know, describe the left now as puritanical and religious. And it's a matter of mockery. But uh, your, your book is not one of those uh, just snarky takedowns. It's actually a very 
sophisticated analysis of what they've done. There's a piece in Commentary Magazine. Now you can find a great excerpt, which deals with food and all of the panics over social appropriation of these things, why these foods are bad. The morality of the world has now come down to what's on your plate. So what do you mean exactly when you call the left and the progressives Puritans? So, um, first of all, I mean it as an epithet. But because it is, I mean, the word was originally intended as an insult, Um, but it's also a a permission structure to begin to mock what what are really hilarious behavior patterns uh, with a performative uh, level of self-deprivation and self-exertion and pain and anguish. Uh, that's designed to communicate outwardly their uh, commitment to the cause, their zeal, but looks to the uninitiated observer like fanaticism, um, you know, just to bounce off this this burger talk. Uh, and you wouldn't think that there's puritanical uh, uh, prescriptions for food necessarily, but there are puritanical prescriptions for self-deprivation, for suffering, for enduring the unendurable in order to be Christ-like. Uh, to uh, demonstrate your capacity for empathy for your sur- for your surroundings for individuals in your orbit, and that does prescribe or it does relate rather to um, to the modern puritanical puritanically oriented progressives uh, position when it comes to food. Take burgers for example. Now, if you if you talk to a progressive in a, in a room full of progressives, they won't have any qualms about saying that meat is a uh, is an affront. To the Eden right. into which we right. were born, it makes a burden of you on your community. Right. It is a display of wanton cruelty to animals. All of this is very much the language of morality. It's a language of morality that if you pull on the thread, you can get to the 19th century, the 1700s, the 1600s. And ultimately, you scratch the surface of these arguments, you get to a very moral, very spiritual argument about the anguish that these people suffer over what they believe to be their contributions to uh, the degradation of society and the degradation of their environments, both of which are very scientifically dubious, um, but they are supported in part by this moral framework. And there's a moral framework that is applied to, uh, just uh, in this book, just about every aspect of apolitical life, life that should be uh, pure entertainment, pure joy, right. existing a priori outside of politics, but nothing can exist outside politics anymore. Right. Okay. So here's my pushback, which you can easily bat away to reinforce your thesis. You you write in the piece that's in commentary right now, you're quoting the rare jewel of Christian contentment by Burroughs, right? Burroughs comes up with these maxims that tell you how people should feel about themselves. Quote, I am nothing and I deserve nothing. I can do nothing. I am so vile that I cannot of myself receive good I am not only an empty vessel, but a corrupt and unclean vessel. I mean, it's very, you know, day-brightening kind of stuff. Right now, are it's, you reading something, James, or is that are you just saying how you feel? I can't. Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting that from memory. It's the, the sort of negative affirmations I give myself in the mirror daily. But here's what, you know, I read that and I said, what's interesting about that is that the modern person who's telling everybody what they can and cannot do themselves feels as though they have an identity that bestows oppression, which bestows victimhood, which bestows virtue. They are virtuous by their intersectional position on the pyramid, whatever. The people to whom they are, the people they are lecturing to are the ones who are, they don't feel unclean and vile. They have a virtue for embodying these ideas. You're the ones. Now, that seems to be, if they're Puritans, they seem to be remarkably self-content from the get-go with what they are because of what they believe. Or is that just a ridiculous? No, not at all. So um, what scholars of this period get very frustrated by are um, sort of a stereotype 
in uh, American culture of the prudish blue-nosed Puritan uh, who could not abide anything remotely resembling an enjoyable activity, uh, particularly those that are carnal and hedonistic. That's more of a conception of a a puritanical ethos that evolved out of Puritanism, capital P, and in the 1900s in the Victorian period, where you had uh, a progressive movement that was very much informed by a moral philosophy rooted in mainline Protestantism in New England. That's the stereotype. And what what are the years you're talking about? So Puritanism as the, the Puritan experiment ended in the early 1700s. Okay. Uh, began in the in the late uh, 16th century in England, migrated over to the United States where it uh, became much more uh, zealous in the pursuit of its objectives. And then uh, through a series of um, uh, loss of control over the, there was no boundary between the state and the church. And through a series of loss of control over the, the state, uh, the Puritan right. experiment began to come apart and pretty much collapsed after the moral panics of the late 1600s, early 1700s, culminating in the same yeah. witch trials. But did it ever, I mean, um, and I and I understand that, so that, that sort of Puritan, historical Puritan finger-wagging, uh, or even creating a community of people who are all policing each other sort of quasi-voluntarily, right? Mm-hmm. But as you sort of move 100 years ago or 100 years up the chain to, to the late 19th, early 20th century, what you have is the, in the next period movement, which is prohibition, right. which was finger wagging at people who were drunks, right? <laughs> or were drinking and having fun. Yeah. And that seemed to be um, not Puritan. I mean, it is Puritanism in your, in your response. But I, I guess what I'm saying is like, there's a part of that Puritan movement that I see today that isn't just, isn't let's live in an ascetic community and uh, all eat vegan burgers and bugs, but more like I am going to finger wag. I'm in, I'm socially reforming my neighborhood. Right. Uh, and I think that's where the friction is, right? I mean, well, it gets far afield of the, uh, the original sub- subject, but let's talk about um, booze and sex for a minute. Yeah. Because uh, there's a chapter a on minute? this in this book. Well, <laughs> if we have well. time, um, there's a chapter on this book. And one of the re- one of the reasons this book is kind of um, not necessarily this broadside against uh, progressives and and uh, the puritanically inclined progressive is there's value to the social order that they are attempting to restore. There's uh, a long history of the kind of morality that they're seeking to uh, reimpose on their surroundings. That's why the chapters are organized by unimpeachable virtues: piety, prudence, austerity, a fear of God, temperance, and order. Uh, and temperance is this, the chapter on sex and booze. And and we have long known that when men and women are in situations that are bathed in alcohol, it can disaggregate that order. It can di- it can disrupt that society. This is something that we've known since time immemorial. That is the. That is the. I gotta say that is the most sort of weirdly elegantly intellectual way to put uh, a bacchanalia orgy. <laughs> right. But go ahead. Yes. Yeah. But, okay. But for most of our adult lives. It was the left that would respond to what we understood to be the kind of priggish, prudish moralization, right. a, a right. paranoid sense that innocent cultural fare can actually corrupt you and degrade society. That was on the right. And the left responded to that by emphasizing self-fulfillment, self-gratification, hedonism at the expense, at the to the risk of maybe even self-destructive behaviors. Tune in, um, turn on, drop out. Correct. Right. Right. That was what we understood to be left-leaning liberalism. As they've begun to lean less towards liberalism, classical or otherwise, and more towards progressivism, they've adopted its habits of mind. Among them, that the disordered society is a chaotic institution, that uh, idleness, that idle fare, cultural fare, what have you, is an empty vessel that can be filled up and will be filled up with wickedness. Um, And they've uh, begun to prosecute 
a moral campaign to restore a very old form of social order when it comes to alcohol. We've seen institutions that are previously understood to be licentious, libertine, uh, left-leaning organizations sort of curtail your access to booze in social situations where there right. could be uh, uh, con- social conflict or, or perhaps even uh, something worse, a criminal activity, right. a, you right. know, a sexual assault or harassment. Likewise, the you would think that there, the permissiveness of the lefts when it comes to sex Right. Would be just as just as much as as, you know, the the 90s, the early 2000s and the 80s. Um, the many proliferating sexual orientations are not just for self-gratification. If you dive into the literature on the left around this sort of stuff, they all have a political program associated with it. They all get the apple polishing treatment, too, with the exception of heterosexuality. There's even a term for that. It's called heteropessimism. Um, for the, with, with, these are people who are plagued by self-doubt over their attraction to the opposite sex and and need absolution for their, for their sin. Um, But so we not only have a sex is defined as an instrument of political utility, but it is not permissive insofar as it is accompanied by the establishment of labyrinthine courtship rituals that uh, make it very difficult beyond the statute. We're not talking about statutory assault or anything that is a a crime. Um, We're talking about the sort of nebulous nature of human interactions, which make it very difficult to woo a partner assertively and boldly. And the result is less wooing and less sex. Uh, Let me me ask you, because that's a really, because when I read that stuff, it seems to me that there, you know, obviously it's different iteration of it, but it's the 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 um, the consent rules and the sexual propriety rules on campus and places right. like that. They seem like they're right out of a Jane Austen novel. Yes, yeah, but they wouldn't recognize that in themselves. No, um, no, but but I'm, but I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm looking for is the antecedents, like the 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 furious person on the airplane with the N95 mask still firmly in place has yes. an, has a is a direct descendant of which great american icon the the the, the puritan leader in new england in the late uh, 18th century or early 18th century or the um temperance women's temperance movement blue stocking in 1910 i mean wh- where does that come from who's that person the descendant of that person, you, you know, they're not wearing a mask because they're terrified. They're wearing a mask because they think you should wear a mask. They're wearing a mask because they like these restrictions, right. that they had fun. A whole bunch of people had a great pandemic. They loved <laughs> every second of it, and they wanted to keep going. Um, that seems like a strain of American culture that we just, we, we're always be around with those people, right? Absolutely. Well, the, one of the central premises of this book is that we are all the heirs to this political tradition. It has found a home in every political coalition. It's been remarkably long-lived compared to the shortness of the puritanical experiment, you know, properly understood. But yeah, there is a chapter on the sartorial choices that are um, imposed on true believers and and eventually will be imposed on you if they had their way. Um, In the Puritans' time, the uh, sumptuary laws were designed to uh, delineate the kind of economic circumstances into which you were born. Um, Now they're, they're imposed on you to to demonstrate your ethnic background and uh-huh. to show to whom you're subordinate and who you are. Um, and your vegan leather. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if there's vegan leather. That's a, there is vegan leather. Two I got, different I'm here to tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't so, even know right. what that would consist of. So, so I mean, all right. Styrene? That, I, well, I think, no, I not that for sure. Um, taking all the, all right. So in 2022, 2023, we'll say, um, 
are we, do you think that we are uh, uh, experiencing? Uh, do you think we have a little farther to go? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at uh, uh, prohibition. To me, is the model right? Um, this sort of movement people have been talking about for 50 years suddenly, thanks to women's suffrage, let's be honest, became a constitutional amendment. Um, that then had to be unconstitutionally amended. Uh, are we are we on our way to to something that crazy? that we're going to have to undo or are we sort of, um, or is there already a backlash? I mean, I sense maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. I do sense a backlash from certain young people is kind of eye rolling at the, um, I'm trying not to use the word woke, the, the, the new Puritan. Yeah. They're uh, standards. Yeah. But they, am I crazy? They're uptight. No, I don't think you're, uh, you're crazy because just about everybody that I spoke to the, for this book, nine out of 10 were identify as liberal vote Democrat, wouldn't vote for a Republican if they had a gun to their heads, but they are the, the joy that they have for their life's work is being robbed of them. They get up every morning, not able to do what they spent their lives determining that they would order themselves rather. That's what they would do. They can't do that anymore. They have to do politics. They don't want to do politics. So while they're cowed and and discouraged and, and kind of intimidated by this group, they, they do resent it. And there is a much larger host here. We're talking about a very small number of individuals, not Democrats, not liberals, not even all progressives, but puritanically inclined progressives. It's hard to quantify that, but it's not a large number of the, of the left coalition. They do, however, punch way above their weight. And that has, it's angering a far larger host. Your first encounter with this type of uh, t- mentality is going to be when they have um, adulterated or even prescribed something you enjoyed. That is the sort right. of thing that engenders right. a little frustration. And yeah, right. I do think that there's a backlash brewing. And one one of the ways in which 19th century, you know, post-Puritan Puritanism uh, fell apart is uh, embodied in the phrase banned in Boston. Right. So mainline Protestantism in Boston organized itself, Comstockery organized itself in opposition to lewd and licentious literature, the sort of corrupting, the kind of literature there really is, but okay, go the ahead. Corrupting influence of Walt Whitman. Right. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's the sort of thing that really got the, well, they have up. a point. Yeah. So, and this was very successful well into the 20th century plays were bottlerized books were banned songs couldn't be played on the radio, what have you. And a backlash formed uh, commercially, because initially this was uh, a, a warning against lewd and licentious literature, and it evolved into a powerful advertisement for right. it. Absolutely. Publishers actively sought to have their books banned in Boston to mm-hmm. increase sales. The uh, modern equivalent is banned on Facebook, banned on Amazon. Right. Because when that happens to conservative authors, and it does tend to happen almost entirely to conservative authors, the books explode. They do far better commercially than they ever would have and it, based on the PR campaigns around them. Um, it's a powerful advertisement for these ideas that are being attempted to be censored by, um, by a, a very moralistic left-wing kind of paranoid culture. Um, and know, it ends up backfiring spectacularly. There's always the possibility that it can go full circle. There was a uh, post on yesterday that was running around Twitter where, where a young woman had announced uh, on Twitter, and this is almost too good, and you almost think it might be a, some sort of a setup. But she said that we, my friends and I have all agreed that we are done with men unless they agree before we do anything to sign a contract that says that if we get pregnant, that they will stay around and support the child and be active in their life and not just dash off because we're done with hookup culture and somebody pointed out congratulations a contract you say 
Signed, you say? Congratulations. You've just invented marriage. <laughs> right. Um, now, speaking of, uh, so marriage, to drastically grind all the Greek gears and uh, change the subject, a marriage twixt Mother Russia and Little Russia is uh, devoutly to be wished by Vlad. I thought he could do it in three days. And now here we are at this point. I assume that you're following this closely and watching what's going on in the East and the difference that the American weapons are having. Uh, before we go, just to just to show people the, the broadness of your expertise, what do you think about the uh, the war now? And uh, what's, your, what's, your, what's your near-term prediction? Since February 24, uh, Western media and American media in particular has been about two weeks behind events on the ground. So uh, initially... Russia was uh, very successful in its uh, in its early onslaught uh, across the country on three separate fronts. It was not um, when that front collapsed. Uh, all of a sudden, Ukraine was was on a pathway to ejecting all the forces of all Russian forces out of its territory, including the stuff they lost in 2014. It was not uh, right now. Moscow is on path to capture the whole of the Donbass um, and. It's a slow slog, but they are engaging in, uh, in you know, inch by inch advances and doing doing better in the Donbass. They're not doing better near Kyrgyzstan. They're not doing better near Nikolaev. There have been counteroffensive there that are getting a lot of short shrift. Uh, our problem is, is that we have these negotiations with ourselves over what's escalatory, what's not, what what Ukraine can do with the ordinance and the and the systems that we give them and what they can't. Um, and it's the sort of thing that Moscow picks up on because then Moscow just repeats what we have determined is escalatory. Uh, and that's probably a little self-defeating. Um, right now, it's, we're looking at the a slow slog and a war of attrition that isn't going to be resolved anytime soon. We haven't yet found a battlefield equilibrium uh, that can be the basis on which we can establish some sort of a ceasefire. I don't suspect that that's going to happen anytime soon, but I also don't suspect either side of this campaign is going to achieve outright victory. Um, now or in the very, or in the, in the distant future, there will probably have to be a negotiated settlement. Sad as that is, unfortunate as that is, I don't want that to be the case. Um, but I don't see how, given the forces that we've provided Ukraine and the Ukraine has, how they can eject all and everyone from their territory including the 2014 uh, conquered territories of Donbass and Crimea. And that is their objective. And until that is not their objective, there's going to be more fighting. Uh, so there's very little for us to be able to say there, save for our ability to continue to finance and support this campaign, because right. it is in our interest to finance and support. So I, I have one question. Do, do you think that Putin is going to um, just simply declare those states Russia? He very well could. Um you know, the most likely outcome is and what we've seen so far seems rather obvious that they're trying to break the Ukrainian idea in these territories. That was, the idea was to break Ukraine nationally. But in these territories, they're um, forcibly moving uh, citizens into Russia proper. They're uh, distributing passports to Russia. They're uh, changing signs to make sure they're Russian language, not Ukrainian language. Uh, so a, sort of a cultural invasion. And then ultimately, most likely you're going to see, you know, referenda to have these, you know, proto-states, these, you know, autonomous republics that are, in fact, little statelets controlled by the Kremlin. Um, there can, in fact, be an effort to uh, fold, annex these territories into Russia proper, as we saw in Ukraine, or uh, in Crimea. Um, I wouldn't be surprised by that, but I think the very near term, from what we've seen in reporting, is to try to have these false referenda that suggest, mm -hmm. you know, the, the 
Ukrainian ideas defunct in Luhansk. It was it was 100 percent. You know, everybody was waving Ukrainian flags and EU flags there three weeks ago. But now all of a sudden there's you know 99 percent support for independence. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is probably most likely. Well, we may have Russia act philanthropically as they did with Snake Island and just simply give something back. As right. Yeah. No, it had nothing to do with the incessant bombardment and amphibious assault. No, no, none at all. (laughs) Hey, no, thanks a lot. The book is The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. I spoke in error before when I said that he was dressed for our Zoom podcast like Cotton Mather. He actually, I have been informed, is dressed more like Increase Mather. Subtle difference, (laughs) but uh, available to those who know the difference. Uh, Noah, thanks. Good to hear from you. Good to hear you talk, untrammeled. uh, by. uh, (laughs) And uh, and we'll we'll talk again. Thanks, guys. Take care. It's a great book. I don't know if you guys are listening to this on uh, headphones or on speakers or something like that, but if you get walking around with stuff stuck in your ear, you may have the situation where, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, sounds bad and the battery's dying. You know, lately I've been listening to a lot of old-time radio, which, you know, is not a new thing for me. I like that stuff. Those shows are surprisingly good in their sound quality. You would think that old radio that came out in the 40s and 50s would be tinny. No, no, they had beautiful sets. And so it's actually necessary to reproduce all the great sounds of the old radio shows. If it's a good transcription, that's where the Raycons are great. Uh, You know, I use my Raycon wireless earbuds to listen to the stuff as I walk to work. And my Raycon everyday earbuds look and feel and sound better than ever. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable and they will not budge. Now, you trip on a curb on the way to work, they're going to stick right in there. Trust me. Uh, I bump into things sometimes, you know. I'm the kind of guy who, you know, the old pods fell out. The Raycons is like they're glued. Without the glue, of course. Raycons offer three sound profiles to match what you're listening to, plus noise isolation and awareness mode, which is great when you're walking around the street and you want to hear a siren or some, you know, buddy yelling at you. You can be immersed in sound if you want to, or you can be able to hear your surroundings when you need to. That's what I like about it again. Uh, like I say, I work downtown and there's the uh, you know occasional car honk as I'm crossing the street or the guy who wants directions or something like that. It's nice to be able to be aware of your surroundings while you're hearing great sound. And you can hear that sound for a long time. Raycons give you eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life. So you need to charge? Super easy. You can even do it wirelessly now. And with Raycons, you get the same quality audio as the other premium audio brands, but at half the price. Yes, really. But the great discount doesn't just mean they won't, you know, they're not going to last. No, I've seen people talking about the Raycons fail, falling three stories out the window. They get lost in the rain and drenched in the snowstorms, and they still work afterwards. Heartily built. It's no wonder Raycons everyday earbuds have over 49,000 five-star reviews. I don't want to say how many stars that is, 49 times. Trust me, people love them. Check out Raycon's wireless earbuds. My guess, you're going to want to leave them a five-star review too. So go to buyraycon.com slash ricochet today. Get 15% off your Raycon order. If you're wondering, that's R-A-Y-C-O-N. That's buyraycon.com slash ricochet to score 15% off. And we thank Raycon for sponsoring this the 600th Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Toby Young, founder and director of the Free Speech Union, an associate editor of The Spectator and author of How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. He's here to do neither, I hope. I use the co-host of Ricochet's London Calling Podcast. And since he's smart and he's British, we wanted to speak to him about Bojo, who is brilliant, all over the road, undisciplined, a mess. Was it always going to end in tears? Well... I think it was always going to end in tears, Whoa. but I think it's ended. 
Stop there. You, you have explaining to do, Toby Young. You have one hell of a lot of explaining to do. You loved Boris Johnson in Oxford. You've said so in print. And when he first became prime minister, you and our friend James Dellingpole on London Calling, to which I am a regular listener, on London Calling, you were thrilled by Bojo. Okay, so now explain how it was always going to end in tears. Well, I was going to say, Peter, before you rudely interrupted me, that uh, I always thought it would end in tears. Most political careers end in failure, uh, but I didn't uh -huh. think it would end in tears quite so quickly. Um, and I'm very disappointed that it has. And I think um, the reason James and I and many others celebrated Boris's victory um, is that it was a victory for um, cavaliers over the roundheads. We had, a, we had a, the epitome of petty-fogging, roundhead, sanctimonious wokery in the form of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the communist leader of the Labour Party. Um, uh, and Boris absolutely trounced him, stubbed out his cigar on his head and kicked him into touch. Uh, and that was a marvellous victory for freedom-loving, uh, hedonistic, uh, Rebellation, Falstaffian characters the world over. So it was a great, it was the restoration. It was Charles II uh -huh. um, uh, 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 seeing off Oliver Cromwell. Um, uh, 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 but, but I think ultimately Boris's uh, cavalier nature has been his undoing when he was required to summon his inner Puritan, when he was required to scrupulously right. avoid going to um, anything resembling a party at Downing Street during the lockdown, uh, when nobody else was allowed to go to parties, when he was required not to give a job to someone called uh, uh, um, Chris Pincher, whom Boris himself described as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, because he was fond of pinching people's bottoms. Uh, instead of not giving him a job, Boris made him a whip, which is quite a senior position in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. So he wasn't able to summon his inner Puritan, and the political class and their outriders in the media have quite a kind of strong puritanical streak. And that was always, I think, going to do for him. I just, I'm very disappointed it's done for him so, quite so quickly. Toby, may I, may, may I ask another question here? It seems to me, excuse me, when I say it seems to me what I'm doing is setting you up to attack me, because I, I know that my judgment here has it can only be partial and uh, ill-informed by comparison with yours, but it seems to me perfectly clear why Boris Johnson failed. And it's not what you just said, and it's not what Andrew Neil said in today's New York Times, and it doesn't seem to be, as I peruse the British press, it doesn't seem to be anywhere in the British press. Funnily enough, it appeared in one place that I've seen, and that's in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. And it has to do with matters of policy. He campaigned, well, he achieved Brexit. He went to the country and came back with an 80-seat majority, and then behaved as if he had no idea what either was for. Behaved completely in, an, in a completely unprincipled manner, splitting the difference on every policy he possibly could. He's going to engage in redistribution. He's going to raise taxes to help the national health. When what he clearly should have done, he had this enormous opening to use this reassertion of the sovereignty of the nation to cut taxes, to promote economic growth, to begin the job of making Britain the pro-trade, the nation, the historic nation of shopkeepers, to turn it into, this is now a dated analogy, but to turn it into the Hong Kong of Europe, to use Britain's newfound independence to enact some policy, to, 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 to enact the, the sort of the deeper conservative policies that Mrs. Yes. Thatcher always stood for. And he failed in that 
utterly. And yet here everyone is saying, well, well, it was his personality that did him in. It was personal. But that's just not so. Okay, that's well, my argument. Okay, no, I think I think I think you make some you make a very good point, Peter. And I do think that um, the fact that he didn't really pursue any proper true blue conservative policies meant that there wasn't a large enough cheering section to support him um, uh, when when he tripped up and when he gave the puritanical enemies in his party and in the press ammunition. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I was, you know, always urging him in print, uh, whenever I was lucky enough to uh, uh, see him, I was always saying, for God's sake, you've got to lean into the culture war, do something about um, uh, all these boats crossing the channel with illegal immigrants, start cutting taxes, stop putting them up, um, uh, do something to defend free speech, ditch all this net zero nonsense, lift the ban on fracking, you know, do some proper conservative things, the things for which you were elected and why people like me have supported you for 30, going on 40 years. But no, he basically governed like Tony Blair in a blonde wig. Exactly. And, um, and, exactly. And, 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 and that meant there was no there was no core there for him to kind of rely on when um, All right, his Toby. Uh, personal failings let him down. All right, Toby, a, a, a right wing kooks like you and Peter always say when a conservative, you know, proto conservative or purported conservative, putative conservative leader like Boris Johnson goes down. You know, the problem with him is he wasn't right wing enough. But you guys always say and I, I kind of agree with you. Right. But just for a minute. What what was holding him back from that? Was it just the the um, the the sting of being caught at a party, the sting of being essentially, which I, I think is a very deep thing that that the, the nation is going through something and the nation is making sacrifices and and parents aren't seeing their their parents, the children aren't seeing their grandparents. All these things were happening here too, and the elite, powerful people were swanning around the garden parties of. Downing Street, right? So what held him back from doing any of those things? Is he simply not a cavalier, but in fact a roundhead? I think, um, well, the, um, the, the, the most common explanation, Rob, um, is that he has been essentially constrained by his woke wife, Carrie. Uh, known in <laughs> Boris's court as Carrie Antoinette, um, and uh, 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 that's the yeah. most British response. <laughs> that is the most British reason for a prime minister to fail that I can imagine. <laughs> I think I, I mean it's a sort of it's the uh, Lady Macbeth um, hypothesis. I, I'm, yeah. I'm a bit skeptical about that. I'm not sure she is as woke as she is being uh, described as. I mean, I, I think in truth, um, Boris can't bear to be disliked by anyone, um, particularly uh. not by members of his family and immediate social circle. And they are all, almost without exception, metropolitan liberals. So my theory is it's not Carrie. It's more that he just can't bear to do anything which mm -hmm. is going to have him demonized as the kind of British Trump. Uh, so, you know, he, and I think he thinks of himself as a liberal conservative. Right. Um, uh, so I think, I think, I think, I think it's, it's, he doesn't want to be disliked by, you know, Okay. Guardian readers in North London. So, so, two, the, so the, the the twin things that happen with him. One is, I, I think, a, a definite moral stigma attached to the hypocrisy of the party, which I really did feel was like shocking. I'm I, maybe I'm just naive, but I really did think that was wrong. I I can understand how that would hold him back. Did any of this have to do um, with a rethink or? Um, 
subconscious uh, re- regret over Brexit in the nation? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think uh, I think he was reasonably serious about Brexit and um, did his mm-hmm. best to get Brexit right. done. And there's still there is still some unfinished business. Yes, you've got the problem with the Northern Irish Protocol, and he was hoping to sort that out. And now that's uh, uh, a, a big a, something hanging over us, and we don't know if the successor is going to do anything about it. I think fundamentally, Rob, one of the things which made Boris so appealing and made and gave him this kind of election winning magic is that. He, he was never very serious. He was always, he always had a kind of ironic yeah. twinkle in his eye. He would never quite stick to the script. He'd always wander off script in a kind of semi-deliberate way. And he, in, it, why that was so appealing was it was a way of sending up the kind of less sophisticated, more earnest, more serious politicians. It was like saying, I know, I, I'm not right. going to treat the electorate with such contempt that I'm going to pretend they think uh, that I believe any of this stuff. I'm not going to try and deceive them. I'm going to make it obvious that I know this is all just political theatre. And they like being winked at by that, not taken for fools. And right. they thought, in Boris, we've got someone who's a bit different. He's not just another lying politician. When he lies, he makes it obvious by winking <laughs> at us. Um, uh, but I think what, where, what, what proved his undoing is that he started lying without winking. Without um, winking, and, okay. uh, Without winking. And, and the public thought, wait a minute, now he's trying to take us for fools. Okay, um, so- and we thought he was different. Turns out he isn't. I know Peter wants to get in. I just have one last one. You know the guy. How pissed is he right now? I mean, I, I remember seeing that Prime Minister's Question Time once with, with Boris Johnson, and I guess the camera panned or something. And I thought, oh, good Lord, is that, that's Theresa May. Good Lord, I think, I think I saw John Major there somewhere. But those people are still around, still alive. What's, what's, Boris Johnson must be thinking, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I've never met the man. But I can only imagine the man I've seen on TV and I've read about is plotting his revenge I, I i don't doubt it I, i'm sure he thinks of himself as julius caesar yeah. you know um uh, betrayed by <laughs> yeah. these duplicitous right. lieutenants who 30 yeah. seconds earlier were licking his bottom um right. uh, yeah so i, I i'm sure but, you know he, caesar he, act five didn't 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 do so well <laughs> next time he stood up it's for the curtain He's... call that wasn't really <laughs> yeah. okay yeah but I think I think I think I, I think um, I think he does I think he's I think he does feel as though he's been betrayed. I'm sure he's 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 nursing uh, lots of deep seated grievances, and I expect his political memoirs will be um, quite electric. But he's not. I mean, do you think he's sitting there saying, "Look, he, I'm he's still a young, vibrant guy. What's he going to do now? He's not going to go back and be the editor of the Spectator. He's going to have to do something." Don't you think he's going to want that? He's going to want to walk into Downing Street again. Well, I'm sure he, I'm sure, I, I, I can't see how that's possible. I think you make a good point about, he, he, I think it would be difficult for him to just come back as a journalist and kind of resume that career that was rudely interrupted by his premiership. I think the difficulty there is that as a journalist, particularly for the Telegraph, he was always criticising the government of the day for not being conservative enough. Right. Uh, now he can't really do that. You know, uh, everyone would often point out, well, hang on a minute, Boris, why are you putting up taxes? You wrote this Telegraph column three years ago <laughs> right. in which you criticized Gordon Brown for doing exactly that. Why are you now following in his footsteps? Um, so I think it would be very difficult for him to resume his career as a sort of firebrand conservative columnist, having behaved like Tony Blair in office. Mm. 
Uh, Rob, you described Toby as a crazed right winger, and that is true, of course. Of course. But I want to I wanted to plug London Calling one more time because one of the immense pleasures of the London Calling podcast <laughs> is hearing Toby, who is a crazed right winger, regularly denounced as a squish yes. by James Dellingpole, who That's is right. beyond the beyond. Toby Young has the Rob Long slot. Yes, he in does. In London Calling. <laughs> yes, he does. He's regularly beat about. Yeah, right. All right. Yeah, j- j- so, James so repeatedly he, describes me as a cuck. That's right. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> team Toby and Team James. Um, yeah. Okay, so so here, this is the other piece that seems strange to me, at least. Um, what comes next? When Mrs. Thatcher was taken down, you could point to two or three pretty well-defined factions in the Conservative Party, and it was also beginning to become clear Clear that she had succeeded in transforming the Labour Party. That it was it was not yet, but it would soon become the party of Tony Blair. But in the among the Conservatives, there were the Thatcherites, now disappointed, wounded, and so forth. But the notion was maybe one of them will come forward who will be Margaret Thatcher, but not as hectoring, easier to take. And then, of course, there were the Wets, Heseltine, and so forth. So, but it seems to me on much more unclear. This is a kind of strange amorphousness about the Tory party now, not only can you not claim, not, not only can you not point to a major figure and say, in fact, I, again, jumping around the British press yesterday, looking at all the stories on contenders in the, in the race for the leadership of the party, every story listed half a dozen, eight, 10, a dozen. There are no two or three strong contenders. Why is that? Well, um, yeah, I think it, it, you pose a good question. What's next? And um, the Tory party, um, historically, has tended to when 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 one when we, when they when they defenestrate one leader, they tend to select another one who has all the qualities that the previous one lacked, but none of the qualities the previous one had. So I think we can expect someone very straight laced, very boring, someone with no great facility for language, possibly a bit tongue tied, um, a very probably um, happily married for thirty years with very respectable grown up children, someone very boring. Um, you know, Theresa May without the charisma. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, it, it, the, the, and there are, there are a few people um, in the current field um, who fit that, fit that description perfectly. I mean, the person I quite like um, is Liz Truss, um, uh, the foreign secretary, uh, who is kind of channeling Margaret Thatcher. Uh, positionally, she's in all the right places. Uh, she, I think, would be the um, conservative preferred candidate. Um, but I think the problem is that uh, the part that she's not very popular in the uh, parliamentary party with the fellow MPs for one reason or another. And they know that if she got into the final two, when it goes out to the membership, she'd probably win. And it, 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 it's been described as the most sophisticated electorate in the world. So I suspect there'll be a bit of gerrymandering to stop her getting into the final two, and it'll be a contest. So, two so just, just, just for the sake of the listeners, describe the process. The parliament, that is to say, Conservative MPs, members of Parliament who are Conservatives, winnow the list down to two, if I have this right, and then it goes yes. out to members of the Conservative Party in the country, yeah. who totally different from Republicans or Democrats in this country. In, the, in Britain, you actually sign a piece of paper and you pay dues. You actually have yeah. to take a step or an action or two to be member, become a member of the party and earn the right to vote on the leaders. And there are only about, what, 100,000 people who are members of the Conservative Party, correct? That's right. Yes. Um, uh, That is that you described the process accurately. And um, I remember um, and and of course, one danger is that um, people 
um, who want the Conservative Party to lose the next general election will join the party in order to then vote for the candidate they think is most likely to lose, which is exactly what I did in 2015. I joined the Labour Party in order to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. But because when asked why I joined the Labour Party, I put in the box um, to elect Jeremy Corbyn so I can sign so I can consign Labour to electoral oblivion. Uh, they saw that and refused to let me join. <laughs> hey, Toby, one last question for you. And I have to say it's there's one aspect of all this that makes me feel a bit downcast on your behalf. But you, perhaps you can release me from that uh, duty. And it's this, that over and over and over again, one of the claims against Boris that the presser, this, this is just part of the litany, what did he get wrong? And one of the things that he supposedly got wrong and is simply presented as given is that he failed to lock down even sooner and harder than he did. Why is it that even at this late stage of the game, even after you've had your website up, lockdown skeptics for low these many months now, the press is just monolithic in assuming that Boris's error during the lockdown was not to lock down, but to fail to get it done sooner. Yeah, um, it, lockdown skeptics is now it's now the daily skeptic, and it's almost two daily and a half skeptic. years old now, Peter. Um, uh, yeah, it, you ask a very good question. Um, uh, uh, I think that's me, three times I've asked a very good question, Toby. I will now fall silent. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> For me, that was the most disappointing thing about Boris, uh, Boris's short premiership. Um, he initially um, uh, took the Swedish approach, not going to lock down. We're just going to take it on the chin. If we do lock down, the costs are going to outweigh uh, the benefits. Let's just um, keep our nerve, stay calm. Um, and then he caved into pressure and locked down, not once, but three times. And for me, that was that I, I never, Boris never really recovered in my eyes after that. I thought he was going to do the right thing. He ended up doing the wrong thing. In his, in his defense, he did at least lift the restrictions sooner than almost anyone else and led, led the rest of the world, I think, in coming out of lockdown. Um, but um, interestingly, within the Conservative Party, I think the view now, the majority view amongst the Parliamentary Conservative Party, is that the lockdown was probably a mistake. We should if we did it, we should have done it for a much shorter period of time, um, uh, and it shouldn't have been uh, so draconian. Um, so even people who were lockdown hawks um, back in 2020, like Jeremy Hunt, one of the grey men who's one of the favourites to succeed Boris, um, even, they are, even they are now pretending that they were never that enthusiastic about the lockdown. Um, so actually, we're seeing a kind of um, rewriting of history within the parliamentary mm -hmm. conservative body. It has almost no defenders now, the lockdown policy in the conservative party. So I think that view that Boris's mistake was not to lock down sooner and harder, that may still be some people's view, but it's no longer the view of the parliamentary conservative party. Toby, two questions before we let you go on British culture at the moment. Uh, we had a little incident where the uh, the offshoots of Extinction Rebellion have decided that sitting in the middle of the road and blocking traffic isn't working, so let's glue ourselves to the frames of paintings and damage them in the process. And now it's come out deliciously so that one of the people who did this uh, is herself a, a, shall we say, a, a enthusiastic consumer of carbon products. How is this playing over there, This uh, the continual uh, defacement, abasement, and, uh, you know, making people uncomfortable and inconvenient in order to get us all off oil right now? Well, I don't think it's playing very well. Um, uh, everything they do seems designed to alienate the general public, whether it's um, blocking motorways, trying to um, vandalize, um, you know, our artistic treasures. Um, uh, but I, I guess that, uh, you know, and they, uh, recently, one of them, uh, a, gr a group of stop oil protesters tried to lie down 
um, at, uh, during the British Grand Prix. And, and had, 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 had they not been removed by security in time, they would have all been cut to ribbons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, I hope that um, yeah, Boris, Boris absolutely wedded himself to the net zero policy. Um, he was a green conservative. He completely bought into the whole environmentalist agenda. And I don't think that was very popular. It's attracted some criticism, certainly within the Conservative Party. And I hope that this will be an opportunity for the party and the government to reset and abandon that nonsense, lift the ban on fracking, start reducing our energy bills, which are going through the roof. If you want more of this, of course, Twitter is where you can find Toby, at Toadmeister, where, incidentally, you will find a, 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 an interesting roundup of news, which is presented for some reason with an image of Richard Baker. Explain for Americans <laughs> why that matters, because it's sort yes. of like somebody using, uh, you know, Walter Cron or Cron Cronkite. Does Baker have the same sort of Cronkite-esque... <laughs> Uh, well, we do, we do, we do, we do it on the, on the Daily Skeptic. We do a kind of daily news roundup of um, stories which are skeptical about climate alarmism, lockdown, zealotry and wokery pokery in all its forms. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and I promote that on my Twitter account. And we, we alternate between three um, uh, different old BBC news readers. We, we call them news readers over here. Mm -hmm, we say right. it like it is. Um, and, um, uh, and I, I, just for nostalgic reasons, I wanted to use ones that, you know, people from people of my age are familiar with from their childhood. Like I remember Baker. him from Monty Python doing a straight little bit as a link between various bits, you know. So I thought, yeah. is that Reginald Mottling? No, it's Richard Baker. <laughs> oh, the things you learn from his Twitter feed. And it's uh, it's great. As is the podcast with Delling Pole here on the Ricochet Network. And as perhaps the next time we talk to you, we, we hope it's about a innumerable successes too too great to measure but one fears <clears throat> things will go as they often do toby young thanks for joining us here in the podcast today it's been a pleasure to have you on our famous 600th episode that's special thank you very you're, much you're very special <laughs> thanks toby toby, toby <laughs> you terrible squish you terrible squish will you give james my best please <laughs> squishes unite i will peter <laughs> thank you good to see you rob take care I, bye -bye. Uh, by the way rob i loved your piece and off he goes. Thank you. That's all I need. That's all I heard. <laughs> that's <laughs> all I needed to hear. Cut off. <laughs> and we don't know what which piece it was. I, that's a that's bring a him back. Bring him back on. Let him finish. A blanket endorsement of of all of your pieces. I think. Yeah, I think just... that's what. That's the only possible mm -hmm. gloss on what piece that here, meant. piece there, piece what. Well. Uh, before we go, I suppose we should note a couple of things. Uh, Rob, you incessant ricochet promoter. We're going to tell us about a meetup that's coming, which is a tip of. Yeah, so, um, uh, as you know, the summer of the meetup is happening. Uh, Matt Balzer's Milwaukee meetup is at the end of the month, July 29 through the 31st, so that's the last weekend in July. It'll be, it's going to be a big weekend event. Um, Ricochet has a lot of Wisconsin members and um, a lot of sort of members in the environment, so please, if you're around, you can make the drive, do so. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, to know more about it, all you have to do is go to ricochet.com and uh, join, and we would love to see you there. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, yeah, there's we. I had a list here of some of the Wisconsin people who are going to be present. It seems to have evaporated from my notes, but it, the thing is, we'll tell you all about it afterwards. And those people, no doubt, will be uh, treasuring, you know, the podcast we do twixt now and then. I think we'll be up to six hundred and four by the time that meetup hits. But hey, guys, at six hundred, looking back, I don't expect you to remember anything. Uh, I don't. But 
any regrets, any any moments of pride, any things you that uh, that 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 stand out, any or just a, a feeling of numb amazement that we got at this far. Six hundred misspent Friday mornings, <laughs> but five hundred for me. Well, you guys, I feel you, like you I. You guys um, were doing it before I got here, so I think I only. Well, that's have the regret. That, that's, that's the regret, the regret that it took us a hundred tries on our own before we realized we needed James. We need James here. <laughs> I I think what I I think one of the things I regret is not <laughs> is is making lame. Uh, ricochet membership pitches um uh, and not changing them around enough so that people could just fast forward through them um but i would like to make one last one um uh, and also say a thank you um because i know a lot of people have joined recently to help us with our enormously ridiculous unjust and yet nonetheless compulsory um lawsuit payout we are uh, still under um, the sort of Damocles. So if you're um, moved by the 600 times we've done this, you've enjoyed them. Um, I think the fact that we've been consistent at 600, um, now is the time to please join Ricochet. Uh, you just go to ricochet.com and you'll see how to do it and come to a meetup. We'd love to see you. So um, my, my only regret was that I haven't bored you enough with my um, importune and... Uh, 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 my begging. Let's be. Let's not even dress it up. My begging, but the begging is necessary. I promise you. Uh, and I also have to tell you that it's been um, somewhat effective. So if you've been um, putting it off, you could really, 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 really help save it. That's Shay. that's that's great. He, he regrets not. He regrets when we had Rumsfeld on the show. He said, "So, uh, the Secretary Rumsfeld, how would you try to get people to join Ricochet?" I know. I should have been <laughs> right. right. What are the known unknowns when it comes to attracting people into this thing? Uh, Peter, anything stick out for you? Um, any, uh, just, uh... I have spent two, my regrets, I have spent too little time in the middle of the country, but that may be about to change. Hmm. My middle son, Nico Robinson, started med school this week at the University of Michigan. That's not important. Here's what's important. Here's what he, here's what he conveyed to me. This fact tells me that I have been missing something big. The University of Michigan football stadium holds 110,000 people. That's more, for example, than the Yale Bowl, which I think is 80,000 people. And the Yale Bowl is only full once every two years when Yale hosts the Harvard-Yale football game, even here at Stanford, which holds 55,000. And that's only full once every two years when Stanford hosts the Stanford-Cal football game. University of Michigan, 110,000 seats in the stadium. The tickets went on sale a Saturday a couple of weeks ago at 10 in the morning and by 1 p.m. they were sold out. That stadium is full. Every seat taken for every home game and has been for years on end. There is something wonderful about the middle of the country and I want to see it. Stop off in Fargo on your way there and try to catch a Bison game. They're a hell of a football team and the stadium's packed everything as well, too. Not surprising that they don't have more people for the Harvard-Yale game, though. I mean, a Tom Lehrer song comes to mind and really Clash of Football Titans doesn't either. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, Peter, you do need to do so. You should take a sabbatical, get in a car and do a Travels with Charlie type thing. You know, where you just a uh, peregrination around the country and ending up at, you know, at on Rob's front door. I can give you the address. I've been there. <laughs> well, gentlemen, uh, I think we've 
you know, if we get out of this uh, not having done 95, 100 minutes, people will be happy. What have we learned over 600 episodes? Certainly not brevity, but perhaps that's that's due to the quality of the guests and the great questions that Peter and Rob have. And uh, your patience has obviously uh, been with us for all this. And we can only hope that the next 600 will be just as entertaining. Oh, wow. How old will we be then? Well, let's find hey. out. One of the ways we'll find out, by the way, is uh, if we have sponsors like Tommy John and Raycon. Great products support them for supporting us, and you will have your life improved as well. And I'm supposed to say, in case you haven't noted, uh, join Ricochet today. We'd really appreciate that. We would very and much if, appreciate it. If we do, Rob Long will personally come to your house and show you how to give us five-star reviews on Apple, uh, because we don't want to farm that out to some Chinese farm where they have a bunch of bots with fingers tapping on phones. No, that would be wrong. We want legitimate, happy people saying, yes, five stars would listen again. Uh, congrats, guys. You founded one hell of a website and a community. <laughs> and uh, if you hadn't, I don't know where I'd spend so much of my time chattering and arguing and agreeing and having the time you know, that I was due on Ricochet. Thank you so much. And, and it worked out just exactly as Rob and I planned. It made us both rich. <laughs> in yeah. spirit. In it, spirit. It, yes, in, uh, in spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So you got the rich in spirit part done for the first 600. Rich in material wealth is for <laughs> the next lovely. 600. You know, we're not even going for that anymore. We're just going for paying off the lawsuit. Exactly. If we could do that, that would be that's all the rich. That's a rich enough for me. If, if, if we leave you with one inspirational word today, my friends of Ricochet, it is this solvency. Uh, so that, let that be our watchword. <laughs> Peter, Rob, been a pleasure. We'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week, boys. Next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.